Chapter 7, A Misplaced Sacrifice Recently, I had the privilege of attending my first grade son's Veterans Day program. We met in the school cafeteria. The kids sang the classic patriotic songs and did choreographed motions. During another portion of the program, a dad serving as a major in the Army showed a slideshow of his experience in Iraq. The production quality of the event was what you'd expect from a first grade cafeteria performance. The transitions were awkward. There was dead space everywhere. When the projection screen rolled down from the ceiling, it sounded like a dying witch. The volume for the multimedia presentation, a YouTube video, wasn't working. One kid showed up late and took at least a minute to squirm past 15 other kids on the risers. The crowd let out an audible sigh of relief when she finally was situated. There was nothing remarkable about the production quality. Yet, when the major talked about parting from his son for 15 months, there was not a dry eye in the room. He closed with this quote from G.K. Chesterton. The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. More tears. It was not an excellent performance, yet all the people I talked to afterwards said it was the best Veterans Day celebration they had ever experienced. I agreed with them. How could it be the best celebration yet lacked all modern production standards. Poor timing, poor sound equipment, average speaking, kids picking their noses and missing cues. What about an elementary school Veterans Day performance makes it so professional men and women can come, be deeply touched, and have no concern for quality? Conversely, what is it about the church that we can invest countless dollars and hours into a special church service and people still walk away as critics? Where is the disconnect? I want to suggest that the disconnect has to do with a misplaced sacrifice. When Constantine made church an event in a building, the location of our sacrifice changed. While Jesus and the early church sacrificed themselves for each other and their world, many of us are now giving our lives in order to run events in our fourth places, our church buildings. To carry our Veterans Day analogy a step further, the major talking at the assembly didn't care about production quality because he knew that his real battlefield was not in the cafeteria. As a church, our time, energy, and resources go primarily toward worship services and buildings because we consider our services the battlefield. We have misplaced our sacrifice. We are sacrificing on the wrong altar. In our journey of church forms, we have discussed place and people, and now we come to our final form, practices. When Constantine and Christum moved the church into the fourth place, Christian practices made a fundamental shift. The rhythms of Christianity, rather than revolving primarily around a shared life and community, began to revolve around buildings and programs. What is the impact of Christum on our practices? In short, we became very good at all the wrong things. We will see in this chapter that we are now running a version of Christianity that takes a great deal of money and effort, yet isn't designed to actually grow people to live and act like Jesus in the world. God loves excellence. There is a popular myth in the church, and it goes something like this, God loves excellence, so everything we do should be done with excellence. Ask any worship leader why the music must be great, and the answer will likely be, God loves excellence. Ask the production manager why they need such elaborate stage design, God loves excellence. They may quote Romans 12.1 and tell you that worship is a sacrifice. If that's the case, then the quality of our sacrifice matters. 
After all, Leviticus 22, verse 21 says, When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. Don't we want to be acceptable to God? Verses like these can lead us to believe that we need to offer our sacrifices without any blemish or defect. If worship is our sacrifice, then it follows that our production should be free of blemishes or defects. We should work hard and spend whatever resources it takes to get the best sound, the best musicians, the best lighting. After all, God loves excellence, and God deserves our very best, right? Maybe not. God does love excellence, but only in the right things. A person can be an excellent drug dealer or con artist. We can't assume that just because we do something that God wants us to do that thing really well, it is the object of excellence that matters, not excellence at all things. Consider Paul's words in Philippians 4.8. Whatever is excellent, think about such things. Here, Paul does not state that we should do everything with excellence. On the contrary, he says that some things are excellent and some things are not. We should think about the things that really are excellent, not the other things. The more important question to ask then is, what does God think is excellent? Many of us have simply assumed that since we have grown up with worship services at the center of our church experience, that God must be really interested in worship service excellence. The only problem is this assumption is not what the Bible teaches, nor what Jesus and the early church modeled. Worship as life. If God is not looking for great worship services, then what is he looking for? We will discuss this much more in the next chapter. In summary, we were created in the garden to experience all of life as worship to God, the everywhere worship of Eden. Prior to the fall and the need for a temple, worship revolved around relationship with God, with each other, with the creation itself. We were designed to be stewards of God's creation, created in the image of God. We were to live in such a way that our life on earth reflected his love and justice. Worship and life were one. When our connection to God was lost, he gave us the physical temple building and its sacrificial system. This was temporary. Jesus' coming moved the temple out of the building and into a human being. Friends, Jesus did not leave heaven and come to earth just to help us rebuild temples and write hit worship tunes. No, he had something bigger in mind. His coming moved worship from here to here. Note to the audio listener, in this chart, he has an arrow pointing from the upper left, our place, our thing, and the church, to the lower right, their place, their thing, where the coffee shop and businesses and homes and Uh, workplaces are. This is the point of the incarnation. Everything about worship, place, temple, people, priests, and practices, sacrifice, all became embodied in a Jewish man of Nazareth. The entire system of worship moved back into the neighborhood. What Christ modeled, we are to continue today as his body. The New Testament shows a progression from the building back into reality. Paul's life became a drink offering. Hebrews takes the altar outside the camp and describes the sacrifice as taking care of people with needs. We even see the Levitical instructions about blemishes reimagined. Paul writes, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Did you catch that? 
It's not our guitar solos and stage lighting that should be without blemish. It's us. Not because we wear stage makeup, but because we are forgiven people and now stand blemish-free before God. When Jesus looked into the eyes of the woman at the well, he saw every blemish of her past. He also saw something else, a child of God with a story about to be redeemed. He saw a life capable of carrying the good news about Jesus into her culture like none of his male Jewish disciples ever could. He saw the future of worship, not a bunch of Samaritans needing to become like Jews in order to worship God at their temple, rather a new breed of worshipers who would be full of the Spirit of God, ready to be released to redeem Sikhar from within. Our modern worship that draws people out of their culture and into our Christian subculture is not the worship Jesus came to give us. Fourth place worship separates us from our world. Jesus' worship integrates us back into it. Mercy is our sacrifice. Confusion about worship excellence is nothing new. The religious leaders in Jesus' day were also overly obsessed with temple excellence. Remember the story of Matthew's party of sinners when all the religious people showed up? The Pharisees could not comprehend someone who claimed to be a Jewish rabbi purposefully eating and drinking with the filth of the earth. Temple excellence required staying ceremonially clean. To them, that meant avoiding dirty people. Jesus rebuked them, saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I'm more concerned with these beautiful, sinful people than with your temple excellence. For the Pharisees, mercy and sacrifice were both good things. The religious leaders were not being disobedient when they cared about the quality of their temple sacrifices. Sacrificial excellence was commanded by God in the law. However, God has an opinion as to what matters more, and his priority has always been mercy. This was not only true in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament. Hosea 6.6 6 states, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgment of God rather than burnt offerings. Mercy has always been superior to sacrifice. But for the Jewish people, temple sacrifices were also important. Jesus himself represented this tension. Jesus was consumed by mercy, but he also was an observant Jew. He practiced both justice for the outsider as well as the liturgy of the insider. Jesus never condemned the temple nor the temple sacrifices. He participated in them because he represented the overlap of the ages, a human temple attending a physical temple. What about us? We are no longer required to offer temple sacrifices. We should be free to give our undivided attention and resources to mercy. For us, mercy is the sacrifice. This is not just good theory or rhetoric. This is how the early church actually practiced their faith. Look at how Justin Martyr's community from around 150 AD used their resources. What is collected is deposited with the overseer. He uses it for the care of orphans and widows, for those who are suffering, want arising from illness or any other cause, for prisoners and for travelers staying with us for a short time. Briefly, he provides for all who are in need in the town. What percentage of your church budget goes towards running the physical temple? And what portion goes towards compassion for the human temples in your community? Worship for Justin no longer had to do with temple excellence, but with sacrificial living for each other. 
Justin's church was a community of mercy. If we are ever going to be able to reprioritize our churches around mercy rather than temple excellence, we are going to need to put our sacrifice back where it belongs, back into real life, families and weddings. By the front door in my home, there's a sign that says, enjoy the little things in life, for one day you will look back and realize they were the big things. The real substance of family is in the little things. Work, play, fighting, making up, kids, conversation, eating, messes, sleep, love, serving neighbors, enjoying friends and sports. The normal, the everyday, the basic family gatherings happen around the dinner table. We pray, eat, and talk about what's going on in life. There's some drama. A kid won't eat. A high schooler had a bad day at school. Work was rough for mom or dad, but everything is okay. We're together now eating a meal. It's informal and casual. There's good food and good drink. People can be themselves and let their guard down. These are normal family rhythms, family practices, the little things. Occasionally, we do a big thing, a family vacation, an elaborate birthday party, an anniversary. And, of course, there is the biggest of them all, the wedding. Weddings are big events. You hire a wedding planner and spend a ton of money. You dress up and your family members come, your volunteers, ushers, and greeters. Uncle Larry sings a solo. Little Danny is the ring bearer. The event is formal. If a transition goes bad, it's awkward. Everyone is exhausted when it's all over, but that's okay. You did it together. It was beautiful. Stressful, but beautiful. And you won't have to do it again for another couple of years. Now, imagine a family who decides to stop having family meals together. In fact, they also decide to stop living together. Rather than experience everyday life together, they only come together every weekend for a wedding. No more little things, just the big things, over and over every weekend. You might be thinking, who in their right mind would do that? Who would trade the real substance, variety, and authenticity of family for a life of stressful weekend events? Sound familiar? In general, our modern church services have all of the elements of a formal wedding, plus some extras. People get dressed up. Professionals run the production. We need ushers, greeters, programs, parking lot attendants, sound systems, video producers, trained vocalists, professional orators, and well-timed transitions. Why are we doing this? Because of Constantine's foundational paradigm, church is primarily an event in a building. Somewhere along the way, church changed from a community of mostly little things to a weekly wedding ceremony. We started sacrificing ourselves on the altar of the fourth place. Justin, Tertullian, Paul, Peter, Jesus, and the rest base their gatherings around the rhythms of the family meal, not the family wedding. At a meal, the social rules are different. Nobody cares about perfect timing, production quality, or flawless public speaking. People are too busy enjoying themselves around good food and conversation to care. If someone messes up dinner, you don't simply leave. You are connected by a relationship, not a performance. Some of you may be thinking, that's just because the church was small. You can't have an informal meal at a mega church of 10,000. This is a good observation, but it is actually thinking about the issue backwards. Many of us think of church as an event in small group, as an optional place for people to experience life together. This is backwards. The primary definition of church is a spiritual family. All families need the little things. The optional part is actually the big things. Jesus took a common meal with common people and made it sacred. 
This is because the medium is the message. By making a common meal holy, the gathering reflected the nature of Jesus himself. What does that mean? The common meal represents the message of the gospel. The gospel was not just what Jesus said with his mouth. It was proclaimed by his very nature. Jesus is the word of God. God expressed as a medium. When God wanted a bill to build a bridge back to humanity, it was it is significant that he didn't send a rock star, but instead sent a vulnerable baby. God wanted us to know that he accepts us in our weakness. He accepts the common, not just the spectacular. That's why the medium of our gathering matters. When we eat common food with common people, we are reminded that God still saves sinners. Romans 5, 8 tells us, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we clean ourselves up or get every note right. While we were still sinners. We have seen that our current way of practicing church is expensive and time-consuming. That is a big problem. But a much deeper problem is that when we put professional polish on our gatherings, we no longer reflect the nature of Jesus. Instead of reflecting a gospel for the broken, we're actually reflecting the message of legalism, the, the notion that in order to get to God, we need to clean ourselves up enough to be presentable. In doing so, we reflect every other religion in the world that has to work to appease its God. Our striving after performance, excellence, though cloaked in the language of biblical sacrifice, is actually an assault on the gospel itself. Think about the mixed messages we are sending people all the time. We preach about grace all the while trying to deliver a sermon without mistakes. We put the beautiful and talented on stage all the while telling our little girls not to worry about their body image. Trying to be vulnerable and authentic every week on stage is about as effective as taking children to the mall in December and telling them to focus on the real meaning of Christmas. Our weddings, quote-unquote, aren't allowing us to be sinners saved by grace. They are forcing us to be performance-oriented imposters. We can't help ourselves because we're on a stage and we underestimate the power of our medium. We know we are supposed to be a safe family where people can be themselves, but the best answer we can muster is a stage family photo shoot where everyone has to pretend to have it all together. We are a Photoshop church, but the gospel is about the genuineness of the candid moment. We mistakenly equate deep commitment to church with the time spent running events, but Jesus really just wants us deeply committed to each other. We are sacrificing for the fourth place when we should be sacrificing for one another. The New Testament is ripe with commands to love one another, serve one another, encourage one another, and submit to one another. There is not a single command to perform church services with excellence. A.W. Tozer explains our reality like this. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. In its stead, our programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and the servile imitation of the world which marks our promotional methods all testify that we, in this day, know God only imperfectly and the peace of God scarcely at all. And he was writing in 1949, before megachurches. Some of you may be thinking, can't we just do what a lot of megachurches do? 
weekly big thing events and really good little things, small groups? This is a great question and one I've spent a lot of time processing for myself. I personally spent three years pastoring small groups at a mega church. Here is the problem with this solution. If it is a if it is true that our performance oriented excellence is built on the medium of legalism, then this is a poison to be avoided, not an ingredient to keep in a well balanced diet. To do both small groups and large production is to say, I want a nice blend of my medium of some gospel and some religious performance, some sinner saved by grace and some good self improvement show. This is why I eventually needed to leave the mega church, even though I loved my church, our worship leaders, and my role of helping people find community in small groups. I realized we were not maintaining a balance of large and small. Rather, we were maintaining a balance of gospel and legalism, freedom, and works. I understand this might be difficult to hear, but it is true. It has to be true. The medium of Jesus has to matter. God identified himself among the dirty shepherds, sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. God didn't hire talent, but common fishermen. If our platforms are only accessible to the strong and talented, the polished and clean, we have rebuilt Christum's screens and simply given them a new name, the stage. And let's not pretend performance excellence is just an issue in the megachurch. No, in fact, it's usually just that Mega churches are performing better, and the rest of us are working harder with less resources in order to keep up. Now, I want to be clear. Large gatherings are possible. Large churches are possible. I am not simply advocating house church here. There are many other options. We will talk about all of this. Not every wedding is a performance. You can gather with a large group of people and not need a big show. You can gather in a large building and not create a new holy place. We need to sing and pray and experience God up close and personal. I am not suggesting we stop these practices. I am suggesting there is a better way to practice church that doesn't depend on performance. I have personally felt close to God in a Hillsong United concert. I have also encountered God on a rickety old bus driving the streets of Nicaragua, singing songs of praise with my friends, on a cross-cultural trip. God has never cared about performance or size or cost. He cares about the heart. Why the Tears by Dudley Callison I was surprised by the tears that flowed as I worshipped at our Communitas staff conference. These are the same songs we sing at the Megath Church back home. Why the Tears now? Back home, we have pro-grade musicians, everything you could want from a sound system, lighting, and stage, stage design. Don't you get what you pay for? Shouldn't the extra money and effort make weekly corporate worship more meaningful? Then why do I find myself in the environment singing blandly and looking around somewhat disconnected from God? Then it struck me. At the staff conference, I was surrounded by people I know and love, the people I serve alongside. I realized once again that worship isn't all about the bells and whistles, but about a community engaged with God together in life and mission. I'm sure the strangers standing near me back home also love Jesus and may even participate in extending God's love to others, but they are not part of my community. They don't participate together in mission. They don't sacrifice for each other. They don't fight together to love our neighborhood. You simply cannot separate worship from community. 
You can't separate worship from mission. No dollar amount can replace the presence of God alive and active in a community that loves each other and serves together. The sad reality is that for all of our sincere effort and our millions of dollars, our performance-oriented version of excellence is putting us in a position where we are actually doing the exact opposite of what people need in order to become more like Jesus. We have misplaced our sacrifice. We are like a couple who put all of their life savings into the wedding but forgot to plan for the marriage. Discipleship Confusion The Western Church has largely bought into the myth that says, if we can just get our weekend services right, then somehow people will meet Jesus and become disciples. We discussed in the last chapter how this myth impacts our view of preaching. We think that preaching great sermons will somehow translate into a spiritual growth. When, in fact, dependence on our preachers for our food keeps us spiritual infants. The same myth impacts our worship. We seem to think that if we can get the right gear, the right worship leader, the right style of music, or the perfect gospel-shaped liturgy, then people will finally encounter God and become disciples. Unfortunately, this myth is reiterated in much of the literature on worship. Jesus took 12 men with him, not into the temple, but into life's trenches. He gave them a real meal around a table that forced them to look at each other and talk to one another. It's not about perfecting the liturgy of our services. It's about getting the liturgy out of the fourth place. Confession makes sense in community. It doesn't make sense sitting alone in a pew. Communion works around a table. It reflects the reality that we are all broken yet can maintain relationship because we have a great Savior. But make it a moment of silence with a stale cracker and a tiny plastic shot glass, and you lose more than the fun of a good meal. You lose the gospel. Does that mean we should never have any quality services or excellent music? It depends if you're starting a church from scratch or from an existing system. At a minimum, it means that excellent services are not necessary and are sometimes harmful. If you are starting from a building-centered paradigm, maybe you need to think about how often your community needs their weddings and how often they need meals. It may be time to check the balance. Again, there is a lot we can learn from the parachurch. Young Life, for example, runs camps with a high degree of performance excellence, but kids don't go to camp every week. They do it once or twice a year. During the weeks and months they are not at camp, kids are discipled in campaigner groups where they have a dialogue about their faith in a warm home. Many churches are exploring with ideas around canceling services and doing service projects instead. I'm not anti-worship service. God does great things through worship services. God uses every wineskin we offer to him. However, if we are honest, most of us will admit that our current wineskin is not doing a very good job making disciples. We are throwing everything we have at better worship services, promising people that serving at our churches will help them grow, and yet we continue to complain about churchgoers having a consumer mindset. I recently had a conversation with a friend who has been volunteering as a drummer for his church for years. He wanted to talk because he didn't feel like drumming anymore felt spiritually dry, and wanted to figure out what was going wrong. As we talked, he revealed that church hadn't really felt like a spiritual family to him since his high school youth group. 
He had such a powerful, profound experience back then that it kept him in church for over a decade. But over time, the life had been sucked out of him by the endless onslaught of planning center volunteer requests, new pastor visions, and subsequent pastoral flameouts. I shared with him the analogy of families and weddings. He said, yes, that's it. I feel like a wedding singer. I show up, don't really know anybody, do my drumming job, and go home. No wonder he was feeling spiritually dry. The frantic life of running service after service was keeping him from experiencing church as a spiritual family. If we want our people to live more like Jesus, we need to reconnect church to real life. A lid on growth. Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick wrote a wonderful book called The Critical Journey. In it, they outlined a normal pathway of six stages that people walk through as they grow in God. They argue that most of our churches work best for people in stages one to three. Stage three is when you are working for God. This is the stage where people are operating out of their natural talents. This is the gifted young preacher or the hot new worship artist. Life becomes a performance, an act, a play, a drama in which we are the leading persons and all goes well. We cannot be vulnerable or look weak in front of others because we would be out of control. We are angry with God inside and very fearful of being found out. So our facade is stronger than ever. We look almost perfect to those around us. We are frequently worshipped as heroes. We thrive on the audience reaction. Their applause becomes addictive. We go back for more and more. We strive so hard to be loved for what we have done rather than for who we are. We are ultimately very, very lonely people. The high never lasts. Why? Because God wants us not to function out of our flesh, but out of the Spirit. All of us, if we want to walk deeper with God, will go through what Hagberg and Gulick call the wall. Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. This is a necessary path where God seems distant, and we continually bump into our growing questions, our uncertainties, and our failures, until we realize and accept the limit of our flesh and the sufficiency of Christ. Everyone needs to walk through this path if, pathway if they will ever get to the later stages of growth, which have to do with a mature life of love. Robert Clinton's book, The Making of a Leader, shows a similar pathway. Leaders often have early life ministry success as they operate in their natural talents. However, in order to experience spiritual power and deeper love, they must walk through life maturing. Seasons of significant testing, suffering, and personal crisis. One fundamental issue with focusing on temple excellence rather than spiritual family is that we are inadvertently putting a lid on our own spiritual growth. Our performance-driven, talent-laden churches do not allow leaders to publicly walk a road that involves weakness and surrender. Our buildings are designed to attract the masses. Our pastoral job description is designed around creating a celebrity persona. Our worship culture makes us slaves to performance excellence. How can our people, let alone our leaders, move past their talent and into a deeper life in the spirit if they are always needing to perform for the crowds? What people need during these phases of growth is a place to practice vulnerability. They need a supportive spiritual family and an environment that doesn't force them to perform. It is no wonder then that God allows church after church and leader after leader to blow up or burn out. 
How else is God going to actually get at our hearts if he doesn't destroy the dangerous crutches of fleshly talent we so happily lean on for success? Think about Jesus and his companions and how different their lives were from our upward trajectory of spiritual stardom. Based on our modern definition of excellence, John the Baptist, Paul, and Jesus were utter failures. John ate locusts and yelled at people. Not very good stage presence. Paul wasn't the trained orator and the Corinthians were looking for. Jesus would have been terrible at keeping Twitter followers. At the height of his career, even his closest friends abandoned him. His timing was terrible. His transitions, well, awkward. Eat my flesh? What? His wardrobe? Always dirty from the road or stained by some poor wretched's blood and sweat. It is time to stop simply preaching about the cross and start allowing our leaders to walk the pathway of the cross. The stage is a terrible place to grow. We need to get people out of the fourth place and into a spiritual family where they can be safe enough to, in the context of relationship to fail really big and still be loved. Christian gatherings should look more like a Veterans Day assembly than a perfect wedding. Reclaiming the Battlefield The reason a Veterans Day assembly can get away with poor production is because we all know that the excellence is external to the performance. When you have real soldiers sacrificing real lives on a real battlefield, who cares if there is poor lighting in the cafeteria? When you have real teachers investing their lives in real kids we know and love, who cares if the kids are two full beats behind the track on Yankee Doodle Dandy? It doesn't matter. When you have real substance, you don't need a great show to convince people to stick around. Friends, we have excellence completely backwards. God loves excellence in neighboring. God loves sacrificial living in the workplace. God loves long-enduring relationships. Let's reconsider our definition of success in church and be excellent in things that God cares about. It is time we put the sacrifice back where it belongs. Where are you? A lot of this may be new to you. It is a paradigm shift from the way many of us have been raised to think about church. Many people, when I talk about this topic, have a guttural response that says, but I love my worship services. My own mother has a hard time talking about all of this. She loves high church. I get it. Many of us have had amazing experiences in worship services. We have encountered God there. Our lives have been changed there. I am not trying to take anything away from your or my present past experience. However, we have a big problem, and tweaking the service isn't going to fix it. Many of us feel stuck. If we don't perform better than the church next door, people will leave and go to that church. If we don't preach good sermons or lead quality worship, we might get fired. These are very real pressures. Many pastors are struggling to keep the doors open, and the last thing they want to hear is, stop putting all your time and energy into your services and start loving your neighbors. Some may be thinking, our facility is a mess. I've never have enough volunteers, and my worship leader is a train wreck. You want me to stop caring about my services? There is no simple solution. People, place, and practices are all intimately connected. When we put the church in the fourth place, it demands a certain type of leader to run it and a certain type of performance excellence to keep people happy. You can't just meet in a big auditorium with an audience expecting a good show and suddenly tell them it's okay to, with mediocrity. They will probably leave. So what are we supposed to do? 
My goal in these past three chapters has simply been to expose the impact of Constantine and Christendom on our modern church. This in no way implies that there is only one correct way to respond. Some of you are ready for radical change. The next chapters should give you a lot of practical steps to take if you truly want to live as an integrated church outside of the fourth place. Some of you, however, are in a place where you can only imagine incremental change at best. That's okay. We all need to balance our responsibility to the gospel against our pastoral responsibility to make changes at a rate that won't hurt our people or ourselves. For those in this situation, the coming chapters will offer helpful incremental steps that existing churches can take to move away from temple sacrifice into a life of mercy. The first step for any of us in knowing where to move is to know where we are starting out. So once again, let's figure out where we are in terms of our practices. We have already charted place and people. To keep it simple, we will once again use the same graphic. As I walk through some of the options, figure out where you are and your church experience live on this chart. The big question we are asking for practices is, where are you investing your time, energy, and resources? In other words, where are you offering your sacrifice and your excellence? Our thing, our place. Hopefully you get it by now. If your main efforts go toward your weekend services, you are here. Note to the audio listener, this is the same four-quadrant chart with just the church in the upper left corner, our place, our thing. Our thing, their place. If your church maintains a good balance between the large event and small groups, you're somewhere in this area. Again, it depends on your level of dependence on the religious building. Ministries like 3DM have told their missional communities to try to attend four things a month. Maybe that's three missional community gatherings and one central gathering. Or maybe that's three central gatherings and one missional community. Either way, they are trying to keep real life and the fourth place in balance. If that's the case, your practices have moved significantly into the our thing, their place quadrant. You may still attend a large central building, but if you eat, play, sing, serve, and share real life with a smaller spiritual family, you have moved further down toward integration of practices. Note to the audio listener in this diagram, he has the left side of the chart shaded in. So both the our thing, our place in the upper left and the our thing, their place in the lower left, showing that the church is doing things in their own building, but also doing things out in the homes, workplaces, schools, etc. Note, that simply having a small groups ministry only gets you so far. I was the small groups pastor for a mega church, and we had one, over 1,000 people in 90 small groups. Some of these p- groups were sharing real life together, and many others were sparsely attended commuter, commuter groups. People were driving across the city for a nice Bible study, but there was really no shared life or mission happening. Don't assume that small groups are the whole answer if you want to integrate our churches with a real life. Their thing, our place. Maybe your worship services aren't taking up all of your time and energy, and instead you're putting your excellence into running legitimately cool concerts in a venue. Maybe a weekly rhythm at your church is getting your tenants together for lunch. Maybe your building is home to the Girl Scouts, AA, or high school events. To the degree that your building is an excellent place for real life to happen among your neighborhood, 
You have moved into the their thing, our place quadrant. Note to the audio listener, in this diagram, only the top half is shaded in, but there's only buildings in the upper right, the our place, their thing. So signifying that the Girl Scouts or AA or any other organization is using the church place to do their thing. Their thing, their place. If excellent worship to you is a long walk with God and a spiritual practice for you is having a conversation with a coworker in the cubicle next to you, your practices are integrating with real life. Note to the audio listener in this diagram, the bottom half is shaded. So all of their place, our thing and their thing done in their places. Integration. If you're, if you see parenting your kids, as discipleship, and mowing a neighbor's lawn with excellence as praise, you are practicing Christianity in their thing, their place. A bivocational pastor does not see their job as a hindrance, but as a hub for missional activity. A young life director does not see a track meet as non-work hours, but as another opportunity to intersect with the real lives of the kids they are trying to love. To the degree that your church plant truly puts their time, energy, and resources here. This is your quadrant. Where are you? Go ahead and make an X on the graphic above to indicate your starting point in terms of the medium of practices. Some of you may be wondering where the ideal church would go on the grid. Bottom right, bottom left, a little of everything. To this point, I have hinted that the bottom quadrants are where the church should reside, but I have not said it explicitly. That is because, as of yet, we have not talked in depth about the function of church. What is our real purpose in the world? What are we here for? Form follows function. In the world of design, there is a saying that form follows function. This little statement means that our function or purpose should dictate our design. Only when we know our purpose can we know where we should live on the chart. Unfortunately, it is often the case in the church that form does not follow function. Our forms were designed to separate holy places from unholy places, celebrity leaders from common people, and worship personnel from the crowd. Again, it isn't that a group of people sat down and said, how can we separate ourselves from the world and from each other? I know, we'll rebuild the temple. Nobody says that. We simply default to it or drift toward it over time. This is our current reality. It may feel uncomfortable or hard to accept. Many people have to move through feelings of bitterness, anger, or betrayal before they can accept where we are and regain some hope for the church. I am writing this book because I love the church. That love causes me to grieve for the church. Every day I pray and my heart hurts. I mourn over misuse of resources. I ache for the leaders who are being destroyed and losing their faith. I am burdened for the people who aren't being spiritually fed and don't know why. Probably more than anything, I grieve over our division. Sadly, if I'm honest, I don't see a lot of these things changing in our current design. I see little hope for unity given our attractional need to compete with one another. I heard just today of a church that has an exotic fountain that will play Christian music to a light show every 15 minutes. While this tactic may draw a crowd from other churches, the sad truth is 
This fountain is also just making sure the church sits securely divided into our or in our separate fourth places. And yet, for some crazy reason, I am full of hope. Why? Because God is really big, and I am convinced He wants to see radical change in the design of today's church. I am also convinced that this famous quote from an unknown source is true. Every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. Why does this give me hope? Because maybe our results stem from a design problem. Maybe we are living in the wrong quadrant. Maybe if we weren't designed to compete, we would see real unity take place. Maybe if we weren't designed for celebrities, we could see a network of humble leaders released into their callings. Maybe if we weren't designed around temple excellence, we could envision a church that uses its resources toward radical mercy. We have spent the last three chapters deconstructing the church. The next section of the book moves toward into construction mode. As we begin to build, we'll start with a foundation by focusing on our function. We need to understand our purpose. Why do we exist? Only then will we be able to speak of the design that can best accomplish this purpose.